Father, we recognize that you are a holy God. You hate sin, but you love sinners. And Lord, no sin can be in your presence. And you command us to be holy even as you are holy. And we want to ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us in this room. Lord, there's enough of us here, Lord, that we probably have a couple thousand of sins in this past week. Just attitudes, complaining, grumbling, unthankful. But, Lord, many other things. There might be gossip. There might be strife. And we ask that you would cleanse us in this room of our sins. We're not just looking outside, Lord. You said if your people would humble themselves. So we ask that you'd wash us, cleanse us, have mercy on us, forgive us. Lord, we know that you and John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and you've never been closer to returning than right this second. So, Lord, we pray that we would repent. Our nation would repent. Our leaders would repent. Our neighbors, our unsaved family members. Lord, our saved family members would repent. For judgment begins in the household of God. Lord, we just ask that you would bring a great awakening. Here this morning, Lord, you'd refresh us. Give us your peace, your power, your presence, your purifying work. And Lord, I just ask that, Jesus, we would see what all of Satan has done is is deception and dividing people among skin color and political divisions and all these things. Lord, you would cause people to see that there really is an enemy, and it's not their neighbor. It's Satan, Lord, who started in the garden. And you would turn people to the living God and the truth of the gospel, life-changing, transforming work, and we'd see it happen again and again. Lord, we'd we got a new baptismal coming. We have to use it a lot. We ask this all in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me to two places. Usually just one, but you'll let me get back to something we have done in the past. Hebrews chapter 11 and Luke chapter 24. Hebrews chapter 11, Luke chapter 24. For those of you that are visiting, we are in the book of Hebrews. We're really close to, uh, I totaled it up. We should finish Hebrews right at the end of, I think the end of September. Because we have chapter 12 coming and chapter 13 coming. And there's no chapters after that. So uh, that would conclude the book of Hebrews. So if you're visiting with us, uh, we're finishing chapter 11 today. We typically go verse by verse. I do, I probably do 10 topical messages a year as well. So, uh, but in the course of a year, most of it is verse by verse. A portion uh, are topical messages. Uh, Although, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, founding pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, he said, even though I teach verse by verse, he says, every single Sunday message is topical in nature. In other words, the topic is that text. So, uh, when you think about it that way, all messages uh, are topical because the topic is in the text. We're just not creating uh, uh, week after week a topic when we go verse by verse expositionally through the Scriptures. But uh, Luke chapter 24, let's read that first, and then we'll read Hebrews, the passage of Hebrews. And I just want to read these words related to Jesus because we're looking at a lot of the Old Testament in Hebrews. And Jesus had this to say, and then John or Luke had this to say regarding Jesus' statement uh, in chapter 24, picking up with the middle of verse, I'll just do the whole verse 44 and, and 45. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And this is the verse I'm looking at here as we look at um, this Uh, passage in Hebrews. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Every week when we read the word, we want God to open up our understanding. Amen? That we would comprehend. Now turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11. And why don't you stand as we read the word together? This is really old school for some of you. We started doing this and then the pandemic hit and we got uh, you know, it was just me in the building for a while. 
And so now that there's more than just me in the building, let's get back to just standing in reverence to the Word of God. If people stand for national anthems around the world and things like that, then we can stand for the Word of God. Hebrews 11, picking up with verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions... I'd love to do that. I like lions. But uh, quench, the lo- quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again just to sit at your feet that we might comprehend the scriptures. Jesus, we know even even these things spoke of you. You said all the law from beginning at Moses and the law and the prophets, it all spoke of you. Lord, help us to see you in our word study today. Help us to understand with soft and receptive hearts. Lord, teach us something And Lord, those things that we know, may we put them into practice as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. May you bless each brother and sister that's here. Those that don't know you, may they leave this place knowing you as Lord and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hebrews 11, this is our part six. Looking at this text, let's not forget that true faith is enabled by God. We agree with that? True faith is enabled by God? In other words, without God's help, we couldn't even have the faith to trust Him. You guys agree with that? We need God's help to even trust Him. But even though faith is enabled by God, through His sovereignty, through His grace, via the gift of free will, we still have to choose to exercise faith. You had to choose to drive here today. You believe your car could get here. Most of you didn't say, I have, I have, there's no way the car is making it here today. Although in life, you may have had a car that you felt that way about. But for the most part, you're like, I think the car will get us. You didn't even think about it. But you still had to exercise the faith to come. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. As a way of review, our faith began with what? Salvation began with our salvation, and it continues as a life of faith. The just will live by faith. We talked about that. It's mentioned a few times in Scripture. The just will live by faith. Yet even if we are fully trusting and fully obedient, and by faith we're doing whatever God asks us to do or places in front of us, what comes after our steps of faith is determined by God's plan for each individual and each individual situation. Think about it. Let's say you had two sets of newlywed Christians living in two different states. Both are praying about having children. Many of you remember those days, right? You're like, should we have kids? We waited like six or, we waited six or seven years before we had kids. We were like, this is kind of nice. We can go wherever we want. But then we, we had to stop rollerblading together, and, and she got pregnant and all that stuff. But you have two, you have two couples They're both in different states. They're praying about getting pregnant. They both go three or four years unable to have children. They get passages that encourage them, that they will have a child. They pray and they fast, and lo and behold, they both conceive in year five. 
But one couple has a miscarriage halfway through the pregnancy. They're heartbroken. The other couple has their first child, and a few months later, everyone's rejoicing and, you know, throwing parties. And... But did the one couple lack real faith, the one that had the miscarriage? Did they lack real faith? Was the birth of a new baby a testament of faith? And yet the marriage, miscarriage was just a tragedy? Or were both situations demonstrations of faith that will fall within the plans and purposes of God. You hear what I'm saying? God determines how we grow in faith, what faith will look like and be manifest in our life. Yes, we're called to take steps of faith, but God is responsible for the mountaintops and the valleys that we'll pass through. We don't want to pass through any valleys, do we? No. We like it right here, Lord. I'll show you where I'm real good, right here. We have a tendency to assume that awesome blessings and breakthroughs are the express work of God's faithfulness, while heartaches and difficulty express either a lack of faith or that maybe God's on a vacation when we have heartaches and difficulties. The reality is, that God does an equal work in things we all applaud as well as the things that we like to avoid. And the work of faith may have us holding a full glass or a half-empty glass. And yet both scenarios are demonstrating victory in Jesus. If you're taking notes, you see the title, The Victory of Faith, Hebrews 11, Part 6. Let's pray again. Father, we ask again for your presence, your peace, your help, your power. Lord, you'd remove me once again from the equation that each person would hear from Jesus. Lord, that you would change us. You'd increase our faith. Your perfect love would drive out fear and anything, Lord, that would keep us from walking in courage and in boldness. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit Lord, illuminate the text, our eyes. Lord, remove every distraction, both here and those in the living rooms or listening online. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Genuine faith brings about a genuine victory, no matter the circumstances. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, For whatever is born of faith overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our what? Our faith. Victorious faith is God working through our lives to overcome this fallen world that is led by Satan. Not railing against this world, but walking through it. Not railing against people, but loving them with the gospel. It's easy to rail against people these days, isn't it? No, don't do it. Love them with the gospel. Not defining victory, but abiding in Christ who is the victory. Who, by the way, is also the victory over our own flesh. My biggest battles in life are not all the people out there. It's the people right here. The singular person of myself. Your mind. Your heart. So you're going to need Jesus to have victory over your own flesh, your own mind. So will I. But three brief things to look at from our text this morning. The first one being this, what I've titled visible victory. We see it in the text here. Uh, I think you'll know exactly what I mean by this as we look at these. Um, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Just start, start with that statement right there. By faith, the walls of Jericho. You see walls fall down, you can't miss it, right? You all saw the Twin Towers fall if you were alive. That was not a, that was not a blessing, that was a really sad, difficult day, but it was visible. It's visible when a building goes up, when, hey, there was nothing there, and all of a sudden now there's a Publix there. Some things are visible in life. And what we're looking at here is visible victory. Some acts of faith result in God moving in such a way that what takes place is kind of scripted for a standing ovation at the end of a movie. 
Like the walls of Jericho coming down, that's movie worthy. You don't, I mean, you just look at the whole thing and you could say, wow, this whole story, they march around the city seven times, the seventh day, they, seven times, the walls come tumbling down. You just want to jump up and cheer at some endings in life or in Scripture. This first section, verses 30 to 35, or the middle of verse 35, is like that, with a few exceptions, and some of the saints themselves will touch on that. But the list of saints here in verses 30 to the middle of verse 35, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, these saints have epic moments, and many of their stories look pretty familiar to many of you, if not most of you. Listed here are some of the prominent names and scenes that became flannel boards in uh, you know, Sunday school in like the 50s and 60s and 70s. You know, uh, let's pop. Jo- this is Joshua. Right? These are the walls. Right? This is Gideon. These are fleeces. You know, they all, you know, kids are like, what does that, you know, what that mean? But uh, these are the prominent names, some of them. There's many others, but that became part of VBS and things like that. We have Joshua here to start. He's not mentioned by name, but the faith of the walls of Jericho uh, speak to Joshua. He's the one that led uh, that and walking around the city for seven days. And then, as I said, that seventh day circling the city seven times before these massive walls, which multiple chariots could run on top of, come tumbling down when they blow and trumpet and yell, and, uh, except for one portion of the wall. Remember that story, right? One portion of the wall, one harlot's house is built into the wall, and she has what? A red thread that's hanging over it. And it even, even that, Jesus said, everything concerns me. We can see that, that red thread points to the red blood that would be shed by Jesus. Way back then, that red thread was pointing to the red blood that would uh, come from our Savior. But that section of the wall where Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute, she had sought by faith to risk her own life to help Hebrew spies who had come in and she had hid them because she was convinced that God was the living God, not the false gods they worshipped. She was convinced that their God was the living God and she was convinced that God was with Joshua and that God was with the children of Israel. And she would be given a whole new life by the Lord. Isn't that great? I've been given a whole new life. Started in 1995. I've told many times. June of 1995, 25 years this year, me and my wife given a brand new life. But she was given a whole new life with the Lord. She would go on to marry a man from the tribe of Judah named Salmon. I'm talking about Rahab here, so make sure you're dialed in. If you're watching, listen up. Rahab goes on to marry a man named Salmon. And Salmon has a, name, has a son named Boaz. And Boaz ends up marrying also a non-Jewish woman named Ruth, who is from Moab. So then Boaz marries a Moabitess woman. And then they have a son named Obed. That's another good name if you guys are looking for names out there. Obed is available to you. I don't see too many Obeds around these days. Um, and then Obed has a son named Jesse. And then Jesse has a son named... King David. Do you see how Rahab fits into the plan? And Ruth is in there as well. But uh, and it's interesting because not only is Rahab not Jewish, but neither is Ruth. And so both of them are in the line of Jesus. I was actually talking to someone, uh, talking to some guys this week, and you know, the, that God, uh, Israel has, has always been a melting pot. America has all been out of shape over so many things, and God was always you know, making Israel melt a melting pot. And it, Solomon, David's son, uh, it, it very much appears that, you know, Bathsheba was black or dark-skinned, and, and then comes Solomon, and then, you know, Moses marries a Midianite woman. And so you kind of see constantly God was there. He made the Hebrew people a ethnicity. He made them a nation of the Lord, but they were actually puzzle pieces from other peoples all come together. Even Abraham himself was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And I'm getting off track, but I'm just trying to say, when you look at these lives, there's a lot more behind the scenes than just their name. There's a bigger plan that God already had. But all of it was, he was looking to where Jesus would fit in. More than Rahab, more than Ruth, more than David. 
because 14 generations later after David comes, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, also of the tribe of Judah. Then we have Gideon mentioned here. What shall I say? For the time would fail me. Gideon mentioned. Gideon was raised up by God to turn Israel from what? Idolatry. They had fallen into idolatry. This was common in the judges. They would get right with God, live right for a while, fall back into sin, live right, fall back into sin, live right, fall back. Sometimes it would be 20 years, 40 years, sometimes less. But he was to turn Israel back from idolatry. He was fearful when the Lord called him. You ever been fearful when God's asked you to do something? Of course you have. I, I feel it constantly, especially you know, in the ministry. Lord, how am I going to be able to do this? But he was fearful, and then he, um, he went through a series of tests with God. It's where we get the term, put out a fleece, right? I don't have time to go into that. If you're like, I'm genuinely slave, what are you talking about? You're going to have to go read the story of Gideon. But anyway, he would put out these fleeces. They'd either get wet or they'd stay dry. Then they'd get dry or stay wet. And everything else, either land around it would be dry or the land around it would be wet. That's a very short uh, uh, demonstrate or description of what took place. But he trusted God. And ultimately, with a trimmed-down army of 300 men, he's only enough with 300 men, uh, they were used of the Lord to defeat a massive Midianite army. And each man held a clay pitcher, or you know, made of pottery, with a torch inside. So they put torch inside the pitcher, and that was in their left hand. And then their right hand was a trumpet. And then they come upon the sleeping Midianite army in the night, and they shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they break, they break the pitchers and they blow the trumpet and the guys that are sleeping in the Midian army just totally freak out. Thousands of them turn on each other and start just ramming each other with swords and, and destroying one another and then just running for their lives. And the scripture tells us that God can do this with, God never needs, um, one of the reasons, like, I don't even, I, I truly, you know, I got saved in a huge Calvary Chapel. 15,000 people attended Calvary Fort Lauderdale. And we, and we moved to Charlotte, and we attended Central Church of God, and we thought, wow, it's so small, only, only 8,000 people attend here, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that was, that was it, what it was. And then here we are, and I'm like, I'm glad that, you know, we're not huge because God can do nimble things. Navy SEAL units are small. But they they wreak more ha wreak more havoc than you know the, you know a uh, hundred other troops, and so God says, don't despise the day of small things. But God wants you and I to know that even though the odds and many times are against us, He said way back in Leviticus before this ever took place with Gideon, He said way back in Leviticus, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. You know, sometimes uh, we're impressed by big numbers. You know, you don't have to have a, a big salary and bank account. God doesn't need that to use you. He doesn't need you to have 10 cars. He doesn't need you to have a big reputation. He doesn't need massive mega churches to get things done. I'm not against them. There's some really good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying hey, that's not what God needs and he had to tell Gideon Israel, I don't need a bunch of you. I just need a few of you with faith. Amen? God just needs a, he's looking for, a, like the Marine Corps, he's looking for a few good men with faith and women, of course. By the way, after this victory uh, that uh, Gideon has, there's 40 years of peace in Israel after this great victory. Now notice the writer says again, uh, look back to verse 32, and what more shall I say? Uh, and I have the same thought in my head because I'm thinking uh, for the sake of time, what more shall I say about all these? Because there's a lot to be said about each of these individuals. But let me just note a few more passing uh, details before we look at this uh, remaining list of what I would call against all odds, victories, and lives, and events. Uh, Barak, let's look at him. He's mentioned here, what more shall I say of Gideon and Barak? Barak was Israel's military leader several decades before the time of Gideon. So several decades before Gideon, you have Barak who led the military. He saw a great victory over a mighty Canaanite army. But he insisted that 
Deborah, you guys heard of her? Deborah the prophetess. She was raised up. There wasn't, there wasn't many men of faith, and so God raised up Deborah the prophetess, and he insisted that Deborah the prophetess go with him, or he refused to even go, even though she said, go, God's giving you the victory. He's like, I'm not going unless you come with me. So, of course, she does. And um, in Judges 4.9, it states that because of his uh, insistence that she come, the honor went to a woman and not to him. Even though he fought the battle, the honor didn't go to him. Instead, uh, it was either Deborah or a woman by the name of Jael. You might remember how the story ends that Jael, who's a uh, Kenite woman, she ends up killing the commander, Sisera. He falls asleep fatigued in her tent, and she drives a peg through his head. That's a lovely story on a Sunday morning. I wonder if they tell that one in vacation Bible school. Uh, but uh, I feel like Tim Hawkins up here talking about things like that. But, you know, you've got, uh, that's how it ended. Like when, when they began to run, Sisera, he ends up falling asleep in her tent. And that's how uh, his life ends. And by the way, this Canaanite army at that time was considered an unstoppable force. And Sisera himself was considered just a mighty undefeated warrior, no matter who he fought against, they got mowed down. So it was actually quite amazing, just the victory itself. But then again, Barak doesn't get the credit for it. But nonetheless, he's mentioned here for what? His faith. Barak is mentioned here for his faith. Didn't get the honor in the Old Testament, but God says, hey, make sure, writer Hebrews, put Barak in there. He actually was a man of faith. A reminder that even, this should encourage you, maybe in the pandemic, maybe in the social unrest, maybe in wondering if your job is going to make it, maybe if they're going to have layoffs or anything else. But remember, brother and sister, even wobbling steps of faith are faith. Let me say that again. Even wobbling steps of faith are faith. My good friend and mentor Sam Nadler likes to say, faith always is worked out in the, against the backdrop of fear, that there's always some trepidation when we take these steps of faith. Then we have uh, Samson's name mentioned. Samson, probably the strongest man to ever live. Um, you know, I, I think that any kid growing up is like, man, I'd love to be Samson for a while. I mean, I, I could take on take a jawbone of a donkey, who would think of that as a weapon, and just start you know, slight, uh, slaying Philistines right and left. But uh, Samson, without question, uh, probably the strongest man that ever lived, and, but only when the Holy Spirit would come upon him. It wasn't like he could always win the world weightlifting competition, but if the Holy Spirit came upon him, city gates, big deal, rip them out, walk up the top of the hill, plop them right down. He had incredible strength as the Holy Spirit gave it to him. But we know that Samson fell horribly. He had a problem with women. So with Solomon later, you know, they just, yeah, and he fell horribly. And then Delilah com- completely deceived him into him losing everything. His eyes gouged out by the Philistines, all because of sin, all because of walking away from the Lord. He fell horribly. But he finished strong, didn't he? There he was in the temple of the, the honoring Dagon, Dagon, and he just pushes out the, the pillars and the columns there, and, and he has his greatest victory ever. So he finishes strong. So God says, hey, put Samson in. He finished well. Some of his later chapters, not good, but he finished well. Then we see the name Jephthah. Jephthah judged Israel only six years. He judged the nation of Israel for six years, but he saw a tremendous victory over the Ammonites with an undermanned army, uh, but he made one of the worst rash vows in the history of mankind. You might remember uh, Jephthah now. At first, you're like, who is Jephthah? But he made a really bad vow. And what he said was, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to God. And out comes his daughter. And Bible scholars debate, did he really Did he really have her put to death or did he have her put away? At any rate, it's left in the Bible for our admonition not to make rash vows, but to just walk simply in faith day by day with the Lord. 
In the New Testament, we have a similar situation where Peter says, everyone will deny you but me. The warning from God is do not make big, bold statements about how much faith you have and instead say, Lord, help me wobble through this. Humble. But not rash statements either because whether it was rash or in pride, Peter's was more in pride, Jephthah's was more rash. But after all that, God says put Jephthah in because he really was a man of faith even though he had this horrible uh, decision a permanent reminder again, not to make emotional vows, not to make uh, you know, desperate things but just live that daily dependence upon God. And then we see uh, David. King David mentioned here. David, of course, with great faith, he faced the Philistine Goliath when he was just a teenager. No one else would even go near Goliath, much less even speak to him. Uh, Saul and the entire nation were petrified to respond, much less take him on. And David takes him on with what? Slingshot. A couple of rocks. Again, despise not the day of small things. God says, I don't need size. I don't need, uh, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about our country, when you're watching the news, everything is, well, if we just throw money at it, money's paper. It's zeros and ones and in data centers. How does that fix hearts? Tell me. How does more people win the lottery and all of a sudden they're divorced in a year? Money doesn't fix things. Money's a tool. You know, it's a tool. I bought this Bible with money, but the Bible's worth more than the money in the sense of what I have in the paper. So God is always saying, I don't need big stuff. David has the faith. He has a little mustard seed of faith that can move mountains, that can take down Goliath. David would go on to become what? A man after God's own heart. Israel's greatest king. He wrote many psalms. And we know David failed too. And yet, hey, put David in. Samuel was next mentioned here. Samuel was the last of the prophets. I mean, I'm sorry, he's the last of the judges, first of the prophets. He was the last of the judges, first of the prophets in Israel. He was conceived by the faith of his mother, Hannah. Remember her? She was like, Lord, please give me a son. And even as a child, he showed great faith. I love he, has a little, his, his, he had a little ephod. <laughs> he was a small little boy, and he had the same outfit as the priest. They made him a little priestly outfit, and he wore it, but, he, but they could see that he already had a calling much like John the Baptist, much like Jeremiah, much like Jesus himself. You could see the calling. And so he had his little ephod. He had a lot of faith even as a kid. Remember, he kept hearing God's voice speak, but he wasn't sure. He was like, here I am, Lord. His name meant God is exalted. That's what the name Samuel meant. God is exalted. Surely God did that in his life. He anointed both the first king of Israel and the greatest king of Israel being David. He anointed them both. Um, sadly, though, his sons were corrupt. Are you noticing a trend with each of these guys? His sons were corrupt. He did so many things well, but fathering, eh. He got, he got his training from Eli, who wasn't that good at it either. But all of these men in spite of their failures, God records them in Scripture. So God knows your failures too, but are you progressing in faith? Are you seeing victory in faith? The totality of their lives were lived in faithfulness. And you know what that means? They got a lot of grace. And you know what you and I get a lot? Grace, right? Grace is what helps us stay faithful. If it was not for the grace of God, I couldn't be faithful for a day, and neither could you. Grace activates our faith. Now, the rest of verses 33 and 34, you look at it with me, subduing kingdoms, working righteousness, obtaining promises, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching violence. I'm going to stop there because I don't have time. But it covers a wide range of faithful saints. A few, are, um, a few of them, they're not named, but we can remember their faith. For example, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. He stopped the mouths of lions, even though he's not mentioned here by name, but he's an example, certainly, of someone that did that. It talks about um, 
the fact that uh, they had uh, at a fire here, we see uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They walk into a fiery furnace, right? And, they, and not even the smell of smoke is upon them. And there's a fourth walking with them, the Son of God walking with them. And so we see that uh, God, all through the Old Testament, there's just so many saints that have taken those wobbly steps of faith. And they, because they said, hey, if we die, we die. But they didn't. They go into the fire and they survive. And you and I will have fires that will say, Lord, if I don't make it through this, I'm still going to be faithful to you. And God, out of the end of it, you're like, wow, I made it through after all. We like those kind of happy endings, don't we? But a number of saints could fit into these passages. I mean, there's others. Verse 35 seems to be a clear reference to Elisha uh, praying. It says some women receiving their uh, children back to life. But Elisha prayed to God, and a Shunammite woman, uh, she saw God raise her son back to life, a foreshadow of the very miracles that Jesus would do because Jesus raised people from the dead in his ministry. Elisha did that here, just a foreshadow of what the Messiah would do. But amazing, I mean... Uh, God can do anything, and he doesn't need anybody. Elisha was no more special. Neither was Elijah, who stopped the rain for three and a half years. But aside from all of that, and aside from the faults that we all have, and we have these frightening, even in our life, knee-knocking moments, uh, many of these uh, men and women, they had the same kind of anxiousness, but they still trusted God. And they saw these miraculous movie endings, whether it was the walls coming down or whether it was a sun raised to life. And they weren't sure how it was going to end, but they had the kind of endings that we want to stand and we want to give a roaring ovation. And many of us would jump at being parts of verse 30 through the middle of verse 35. You say, hey, I, I, I looked at the text and I would like to be in that first half. Rather than the second half, let's look at that. To be honest, uh, a part of our flesh looks at these testimonies in the second part of the text, which will kind of bring us to a close here. But this second part, we look at this and we're like, I'm not even sure how this is victory when we look at it. Because it says others were tortured. That doesn't sound victorious at all. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Some were had a trial of mockings and scourgings, just of chains and imprisonment. We're talking about dungeons here. They were stoned to death, sawn in two, tempted, slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. What a word from the writer there. The world was not worthy of them. Now, aside from the fact, if you, let me look at this second point, invisible victory. Now, aside from the fact that any genuinely godly, living by faith believer you've ever heard of or ever met or never met has had more difficulty than you'll ever know about. So I don't ever make assumptions when I meet people. I don't assume, hey, I met so-and-so. They were clean cut. They look nice. I bet their life's been perfect. Don't assume that of anyone you meet in this room. They shouldn't assume it of you either. But aside from that, in other words, people of faith don't wear all their battles on the outside. Amen? People of faith don't wear all their battles on the outside. It's not always visible. But Jesus warned, he even warned the disciples not to compare and measure their ministries or their callings. Don't compare ministries or callings. You can appreciate other ministries or callings, but don't compare them. This is an American thing. That's why we have consumer Christianity. We compare everything. Yeah, that church is like this. That pastor is like this. This ministry, I, I, I give them a four-star rating on five book, Facebook or whatever. I give them four and a half stars. That's what I'll give them, four and a half stars. Can you imagine Jesus watching someone do this? He'd be like, what are you doing? You're rating? I told you not to compare things. Have you heard nothing? No, that was in my notes. I know where that came from. That must be the Holy Spirit wanted you to know that. But notwithstanding, some paths are far more difficult than others in life. Some lives are shorter. Wouldn't you agree some people have shorter lives? I had a sister die at 21. 
My sister died at 38. My brother Montel, both of our sister. But um, so some lives are shorter. Some lives are harder than others. Some ministries are way harder. Some callings are more tiring. Some lives are more sorrowful. There's weeping prophets in the Bible. That was their ministry. Can you imagine that one? You get the ministry of weeping prophet. Lord, uh, even the disciples said, well, Lord, what about Peter? Said, what about this guy? He pointed to John. He said, you, you don't worry about that. I'll decide whose ministry is what. Well, why, are, why can't we have kids and they can? All of these things. God ordains the paths and lives of every child. It's his will. It's not fate or a bad break. Hear that clearly. It's not fate or a bad break. God ordains the paths of his saints. Either believe that or you don't. That's why some in Scripture and history are called as martyrs. They're called to be martyrs. Look at John the Baptist. He's, his whole life was just to live a short life and to lay it down so Jesus would He just kind of clear the deck for Jesus. That was his calling. Short. And Jesus said no one ever greater was born a woman than him. Some die for the faith, and, and they die representing the kingdom of God and God himself on this earth. I have a hard time fathoming the faith and the sacrifice of many down through history. Don't you have a hard time when you read like Fox's Book of Martyrs or you read it, you know, you see what Dietrich Bonhoeffer or different people like, well, Lord, their faith. How'd they have that kind of faith? Even right now, those are in persecuted countries right now. I think of those in North Korea. We've many thousands of believers being persecuted in China. It used to drive me crazy when I was in corporate America and see how, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in corporate meetings and seeing how executives would fawn all over China while they were slaughtering people. I saw it then. I couldn't believe it. I mean, why are we doing this? Someone speak up. Someone have a spine, you know? But there's Christians there that are, well, it's cost them everything for their faith. Just to name the name of Jesus in China or in parts of uh, the Middle East, parts of Africa. Frankly, it's really frustrating to me at times to see the apathy and worldly desire of so many American Christians. It really is. I find it frustrating at times. The Lord's like, don't let it frustrate you. Keep your eyes on me. So I like, yes, sir, Lord. You know, get back to it. But for a moment there, but when we see the sacrificial and unwavering commitment, what it really looks like in the saints of old, that's why it's recorded here. He says the world wasn't worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them because they were so heavenly minded, they didn't care about all the other stuff that you could take from even their own life. And let's be clear, the Lord will eventually be waking up the American church from its perpetual nap. I'll say that again. The Lord will be waking up the American church from its perpetual nap. He'll use somebody to rouse it eventually. Just don't wait till then. Wake up now. If you're watching online, wake up now. Don't wait to be waking up when God just cold ice water. Wake up already. And there's a great love, though. But where there's a great love, I should say. Where there's a great love for the Lord and a genuine gratitude for his grace and his mercy, and there's a passion for the things of God and a courage, not of ourselves, there becomes in a person, by the work of the Holy Spirit, a perseverance and a calm, even in storm. Jesus had it, remember the storm? He's just sound asleep in the boat. Everybody else waking out. He's sound asleep in the boat. And God gave that kind of strength to these saints here, that they could be sawn in two. They could be tortured, and they didn't care. Stephen's getting stoned. All he sees is Jesus, right? He's not mentioned here. These are Old Testament saints. I'm just saying it as an example. Stephen sees Jesus standing up, and he's like, I don't care. Lay not this sin to their charge. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, you're blessed if you get persecuted. I don't have a, but my flesh does not think that way. My flesh thinks, you persecute me, I need to persecute you back. Right? Bumper sticker. I don't get mad, I get even, right? So that's, that's kind of the way we, we're all built that way to a certain extent. I mean, if you can't, even if you can't beat someone physically, you think, well, I, I, there's something, I can get an attorney, I can do this, I can do, you know, whatever it may be. But Jesus says, no, no. You can only feel blessed 
based on two verses back. That's Matthew 5, um, that's Matthew 5, 10, but uh, four verses back, I should say. And verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What you and I have to do is say, Lord, daily, help me to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Help me to abide in you. That's where the ability to live this verse out, first I have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You just can't automatically say, I'm ready to be a martyr for Christ. You have to abide in him, and that will come as a work of the Spirit. For the readers of this epistle, remember that there's a literal church that the writer of Hebrews was writing to. For the readers of this epistle, he's reminding them because they had seen or directly experienced persecution, which is not something. we Calvary Chapel, Richmond, right here in Midlothian, if this letter is written to us, most of us are like, looking at it from a distance because we've not been persecuted. But some of the writer, some of the readers here had been persecuted. We read that in previous chapters where they had had their goods plundered. They had visited people and imprisoned. They had seen it for themselves. So the writer is reminded, encouraging the saints of old that they were not defeated when they went through these things. Why? Because here's, here's what real faith is. Faith fulfilling the will of God. To say, Lord, we didn't have the child, and we're going to name your name anyway. We did have the child, we're going to give you praise anyway. Faith is fulfilling the will of God. And so these saints that died for the faith, they fulfilled the will of God. Ones that saw walls fall down, fell down, they fulfilled the will of God. And he's reminding them what the world thought was defeat was actually invisible victory. The suffering and murdered saints, they realized that their life was just a vapor and that the will of God was to save and God to gather souls together, not for them to gather stuff, which is the American dream. I need more stuff. I can never believe why we are building more storage places. Everyone needs to watch Tiny Homes, apparently. Everyone uh, apparently needs to watch this show or something like that. Why? We have more storage places. We're, we're acquiring stuff, whereas God says, I want to acquire souls. And these saints understood. We didn't want to, they didn't want to acquire stuff. They wanted God's name to be magnified, and faith turns God's priorities into our priorities. J.C. Ryle, he writes, uh, when John, uh, I'm sorry, that's Tertullian first. Let me write. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of, of the church. We benefit from their invisible victories. They didn't look like victories. They looked like defeat, but they were actually victories. And because the blood of the saints was shed, more people said, that's how evil evil is. I need Jesus. Many communist leaders that were imprisoned by other communist leaders said, hold on a second. If this is what, if this is how evil evil really is, there must be truth. There must be a God. And they start reading the gospel. It's amazing how that when you see how oppressive, like the Chinese regime or North Korean, it convinces their people there really must be a Satan. And if they're a Satan, there must be a God. And if there's a God, he must have a son named Jesus. Do you see how the gospel... So all of a sudden, every time this is done, Nero, Pharaoh, any time that you have dictators and evil start to maraud and try and stamp out Christ, all of a sudden, people say, wow... This world really is fallen. I need the Lord. And then they don't care if they die because they realize this world isn't their home. You know? It's a kind of a, a good way of thinking to say, hey, it hey, doesn't matter. I'm just passing through here. But we're part of their victory. We're part of what Tertullian and others uh, had seen and testified. Their suffering, their courage, and their love for God tells us that we don't have to give up and we don't have to complain even in death, not complain. J.C. Ryle writes, when John Huss, the martyr, was brought forth to be burned, they put, a paper, they put a piece of paper over his head on which it was pictured three devils over John Huss's head and the title Heresark, or like heretic. Uh, when he saw it, John Huss said this. He said, my Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake, did wear a crown of thorns, why should I not therefore for his sake wear this ignominious crown? Why shouldn't I wear this crown when Jesus wore? Uh, if he suffered, why not me? Faith sees what Jesus has done 
and says, if Jesus did that, I'll follow in his footsteps. Remember, Jesus said, everybody, take up your cross and follow me. And so he really believed that. I just want to close with this, this thought, because I don't have any more time. But just take a look at verse uh, 39 and 40. And all these having obtained a good testimony. They're all lumped together. Whether they, whether they went on like Rahab and got to marry Salmon and have a beautiful life in the promised land, which is a wonderful ending. Most of us would say, I'd like that story, please. Son and two does not at all look attractive. But all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Rahab didn't. David didn't. They never, received, they never received what this world considers utopia. If you're trying to grab onto life, you know you can't. You can't even enjoy the meal you had 30 minutes later. It's gone. Nothing you can hold on to. But they obtained a good testimony. Their names were written in heaven. God having provided something better for us, they should not be made perfect apart from us. In other words, God's going to unify all of us together someday. There's an eternal victory we'll all be part of. No saint, no follower of God ever in this lifetime found heaven on earth. Ever. But what they did find was peace and strength and fulfillment that money and pleasure can't buy. And how did they do it? By faith, small faith, wobbly faith, little steps of faith. But all faith brings about victory because real faith comes from a victorious God. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that others have walked this path before us. And even though everyone's path is different, Lord, we know that we have seen enough diversity of paths in the scriptures to know that we can make it to the end of our journey. And Lord, in the face of fear or intimidation or temptation, grief, hardships, Lord, we can keep our eyes fixed upon you. And Lord, we can remember that you're faithful and that you have something better for us. That we can be fully convinced that we have an inheritance in heaven. These saints were convinced, Lord, help us to be convinced of it. And we ask Jesus that you would, as the disciples asked, increase our faith. For you are able to do it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.